Hello, my name is Jonathan Getz, and this is Phonicle, a podcast devoted to sharing true life stories, both big and small, told by our elders. My hope is that this podcast encourages others to ask elders in their lives to tell more stories, revealing remarkable life experiences. To learn more about Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, P-H-O-N-I-C-L-E.com. I now present John Philippic, born 1924 in Springfield, Illinois. John served in the Navy in World War II. Were you working as a kid? Oh, yeah. I worked on a, there was a, what they called a truck farm for produce. That was a dollar a day. You have a salt shaker and a knife, and you could eat all the produce you wanted, like radishes and peppers and stuff like that. And in the morning, we'd go out and hoe, and in the afternoon after lunch, we'd go pick the produce and bring it up to the barn and wash it all, like bunch radishes you'd bunch and all that kind of stuff. Then the next morning, he'd take the truck and go from one grocery store to the next to sell produce right off the truck. No, I did that. And I can remember a dollar a day, and my mother took my money from me, and she'd say, that's for your board. You know, she'd give me a, a little allowance. I can remember Sears Rule Book was downtown on Adams Street, and I had a single-tire bicycle, and it was junk. And I wanted a new one, and we went down there looking, and... Uh, I bought a new Elgin. It was $24.95. I remember that. And I rode that sucker home. I beat him home in the car. (laughs) All the way. (laughs) I bought a 1950 motorcycle at the tail end of 1949. I think I kept it three years. I went down to Florida to the motorcycle races at Daytona Beach. And I would never ride with anybody else. There was a group that I hung out with, but they couldn't agree on where they wanted to stop and stay for how long, you know. We, I remember one time we were going to go down there, and I said, uh, they were going to leave on a Saturday. And I said, no, I'm going on Sunday. I got work. I got things I got to do. So they all left, and I went by myself. And uh, Jackson, Tennessee, it was rated like it is here. And I had this leather helmet on with goggles. And I saw the flashing light up ahead, caution light for intersection. And there was an object in the road up there. And I'm riding in the water. I mean, it's going like a boat, you know. I touched the brakes, and, man, that machine went down. And I slid sideways, and my cuffs filled with water, and that whole bit didn't hurt nothing. Just I just lost it. And I got up and started it and went into the filling station. And the guy in there saw it all happen. He said, man, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I just have to go somewhere and try to figure out how to get this thing dried out. And he said, well, he said, we'll go in there and we'll wash right in that where the hoist is, and I'll turn the heat on, we'll get you dried out. It would have never happened if I'd have been in a bunch, you know. And I had one other incident. I stopped at a motel. At that time, they were just cabins. I pulled and checked in, and the guy says, what are you going to do with that bike? And I said, you just have to leave it outside. And he said, oh, no, no. He said, I'll back my car out, and you put that up in there, and then I'll put the car in as far as I can. So it was a different treatment altogether. And so you would go down to the races in Florida? Yeah, I think three years in a row I watched them. But that, that, I, I, they didn't race on a track like this. Highway 1A1 was a highway. Then at the end, it was a mile, and they had, like, entrances where you could go down on the beach. And part of it raced on the beach, on the sandy beach, and then come back up the other entrance and get on the highway. Would you participate? No, 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 not me. <laughs> I enjoyed uh, 
going down there and meeting some couple of people I met several different times, you know. But uh, and I still didn't drink. I mean, at that time, I no, it was it was an education. Well, being single and all, sowing your wild oats, so to speak, you know. But that was that was just one of my things. Two fellows that I ran around with in my neighborhood that were a year older than I was, and they enlisted in the Navy, and I wanted to go with them. I thought my mom and dad wouldn't let me go until I bugged them so much that finally my dad said, okay, I'll let you go. And my mom told him that if, she said, if anything happens, that kid, I'll kill you, you know. <laughs> but on my mind was maybe I could catch up with them while they were in boot camp, get to be with them, but I never did see them no more after that. We had one there that came from a real wealthy family. He never washed his clothes. He'd take a shower and everything, but he didn't wash his clothes. And, of course, you're talking about you got five bunks, five high guys. See everything going around there. We we finally did away with hammocks because the guys were falling out of them, and they'd break their arm and their wrist and all that. They would try to roll in a hammock like you would in bed, and it dumped them on the deck, see? So uh, they, they eliminated those, but this fellow here, when they finally caught on to him, and he was throwing his clothes over the side and buying new ones, which we had a ship store on there, you could get new ones. You have a ship that is desalinization its own water to run its boilers with. So they would allow us about a five-gallon bucket of water a day to wash clothes, take a bath in, and a whole bit. And the washrooms were locked in between the hours that you could go to the washroom. So they got permission from the division officer, and he in turn, well, they explained it to him, and he in turn went to the skipper and told him what they had, and he said, okay, he'd take whatever time you need, open the washroom up, give him a bath. Well, they gave him, they took all of the clothes out of his locker, all of them, soaked them all in the shower, give him a scrub brush bath. At first he laughed. He was, uh, was tickled and all that, you know. And then after he realized what was happening to him, he started crying. But he was the first guy in that shower line after that. Another fellow that was in our neighborhood, he didn't go into service the same time I did. He went after. But his mom and dad and my mom and dad were good friends. When we came back from the Aleutians, and then I got a letter from my folks that Walter Neff shot was in Pearl Harbor. And I thought, they didn't give me a ship or nothing else. I wouldn't know how to find him, you know. Well, when we were waiting for other ships to come into Pearl so we could go to the next invasion, I got a letter from him. He was at a subchaser base in Pearl Harbor. And he said, I saw your ship going in and out because we leave in the morning, come back in the afternoon, you know. So I, when I got ashore, I went out on Liberty, and I went to the subchaser base and— uh, I asked the security guard, I said, I wanted to see Walt Neff, and he's on subchaser 636. And he said, he's down there on the right-hand side. So I'm walking down this pier to him, and he's coming out going like this, jitterbugging. He didn't see me until the last minute. But we went to uh, what they called a block recreation center. It was a big recreation place. We didn't have no beer or nothing, but we drank soda and talked a lot, you know. But uh, I got to go to Australia took us a week. Our main base wound up being Ifadi in the New Hebrides Islands. It was a natural coral reef harbor, and the Navy had gone in there and blasted out a section where ships could go through that passage, and then they had a wire net like that they drug across there with tugboats to close it so the Japanese couldn't get in there. They'd give you, we carried Baylor in the brig. 
so they carried 3.2 beer in a brig. The Sifati had army trailers there that were refrigerated, and if you went ashore, they'd give you two cans of warm beer, and you could trade it for two cans of cold beer, okay? But the natives, they could talk broken English and all. They'd get a coconut for you for a dime. Two nickels didn't work. It had to be a 10-cent piece. So we went to Australia. We were gone three weeks, one week to Australia, one week in Australia, and then a week back. And when we came back, everything was a quarter. Two dimes and a nickel didn't work. It had to be a 25-cent piece. They became educated, you know. But they also had outrigger canoes made from trees. Like they'd hollow out a tree, and then they had this outrigger on the side, and they had sails on it. And I asked him, I said, oh, where did you get the sails? Where did you get the material for sails out here? And they said, before the war, French ships used to come out there and trade for coconuts and bananas and trade them flour. They used the flour and made the bags and the sails. <laughs> At 92, John stays busy by shuttling veterans around central Illinois. One trip resulted in a chance meeting with a service member who, during World War II, was nearly killed as John watched from a neighboring ship in the Pacific. And I drive a van to Danville twice a month, and those, those are all Korean and Vietnam guys. Very seldom I have a World War II. Navy, say, Navy man was only like 92 years old, but he's got dementia and all that, and he couldn't talk. But the other one's 94. He and I had a pretty good conversation, and that when I talked about we were on an invasion for Tarawa and Macon Island, and I was on watch, I think from midnight till four in the morning. We were all underway, and this Japanese submarine torpedoed this aircraft carrier. And I saw it explode, literally. Could see the guys jumping off the flight deck. And I remembered the name was Liscombe Bay. So when... Uh, I went down to see him, and I asked him what ship he was on. He said the Liscombe Bay, and I thought, God damn, I just can't believe all these 70 years later, and here's a guy that I saw jumping off the deck. Well, after a couple, I've been, I think I've been there four times now, and each time I get a little different, get a little more information from him, but he did not jump off the flight deck. He was on the bow of the ship on a gun crew, and when they saw how the ship was exploding in the back, he said they took their shoes off and put life jackets on and jumped over the side about decent 30 feet. Well, <clears throat> come to find out, they had a crew of 900 and some, and I think there's only 200 and some that survived. And that's when I told your dad about the Liscombe Bay, and he got all that information for me, and then I took it down there to him. He could never figure out how that ship got torpedoed in a convoy until that literature that he gave me said that the two destroyers that were escorting pulled off to another position, and the Japanese sub torpedoed that aircraft carrier. That's how it got in there, and that's how he found it out. Do you think knowing something like that helps? Can that bring some sort of closure to what happened? It did to him. It brought a closure to him as to what happened. I mean, he could never figure out how, why they got picked out, you know. Among the nearly 650 crewmen killed on the USS Liscombe Bay was Doris Miller, an African-American considered to be one of the first U.S. heroes of World War II. Miller was a messman, third class, and cook. Messmen were a racially segregated branch of the Navy, whose duties included feeding and serving officers. 
Miller was serving on board the USS West Virginia in Pearl Harbor the morning it was attacked by the Japanese on December 7, 1941. After the first torpedo hit the West Virginia, Miller immediately reported for duty and helped move the ship's wounded captain from an exposed position. He then assisted a lieutenant with a pair of anti-aircraft machine guns. While Miller was only expected to help feed the guns, he went further and started firing, even though he wasn't experienced. Miller remarked, quote, It wasn't hard. I just pulled the trigger and she worked fine. I'd watched the others with these guns. Upon emptying his ammunition, he then helped the captain and other injured sailors off the deck. Doris Miller was the first African-American awarded the Navy Cross, at the time the third highest Navy award for gallantry during combat. At the end of our discussion, John started flipping through an album of official photos given to all service members aboard his ship. Like what, what sticks out to you most in the photo album? Oh, God. I think the night of the, the, night of the uh, Japanese uh, it was declared over. That the, oh, everybody with their uh, on, out of uniform? And... Yeah, they were up on the uh, top of the turret in their shorts. <laughs> we, oh, God, we had a band on the ship. And the band came out there, and they were playing music, and everybody was hooting and hollering and just raising all kinds of hell. I can't remember where we were at that time, but uh, we went to Japan and parked right next to the Missouri and watched them sign, watched MacArthur uh, sign that treaty. We, we went ashore in Japan. Not very long, but I think we had just walked around one little neighborhood there, and that was it. There was nothing there. It was all devastated, you know. So we saw the treaty being signed by MacArthur and the Japanese people. And I don't even remember, we picked up 500 passengers, but I can't tell you where. Uh, and we brought them back to Pearl Harbor, dropped them off, went down through the Panama Canal and up the East Coast, and it was all over just that quick. What are your duties coming back? Same, same. always, always the same. You still had your gun watches and all. Nothing ever changed as far. The only thing that, when you had the 500 passengers, if you had a gun watch coming up, then you got your bunk. And if you didn't have a watch or anything coming up, then somebody else could sleep in it. That was the only trade-off. But uh, nothing changed as far as duty-wise and all that was concerned. And so you came through the Panama Canal? Yeah. And back up the East Coast? Yeah. And into uh, New York? Norfolk. Norfolk. Yeah. And that's another strange thing. The one I told you about seeing my one buddy in Pearl Harbor... I had found out that he transferred from that subchaser to a destroyer. 327 was the number of it. We were tied up at a pier in Norfolk because we were going to get put in mothballs in Norport News. And uh, a group of destroyers were coming in. His was the third one in line. And the first two were going straight up. And I thought, they're going to Boston. They're not even going to come in here. But his turned and came in and pulled right in front of our ship at the pier. And I got permission to go ashore and help him tie up. He and I went on Liberty, and I remember that time we got drunk. Stopped at the Granby Hotel on Main Street, used the restroom, come back out and staggering down the street. It was 11 o'clock at night curfew for sailors. And I saw two shore patrols about a block away from us. And I told him, I said, Shot, I think we're in trouble. Them guys came up. About a half a block from us, crossed over to the other side of the street and went on. <laughs> Do you think they were giving you a break or they were? Yeah, they, they did. had their own mission? No, they, they gave us a break. I know that. Because we weren't able to do nothing. I mean, except hang on to one another and stagger home. <laughs> oh, boy.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Phonicle. If you have an elder in your life that would like to share their stories for potential use in a future episode, please email me at listen at phonicle.com. For more episodes of Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, where you can also sign up for new episode email alerts. Thanks.